Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Coming to you once again from Arlington, Texas today with episode 496. It is Thursday and uh, it is the 19th of August, man. We're way past the halfway point of the month and uh, I'm about to go away on vacation again. I know it seems like I've been taking a lot of vacations lately, but this is the real vacation. The last vacation I went on... Uh, was kind of a working vacation. It was hanging out with our moderators in the forum, and it was TSP-related. And this time, I'm going to go lay on a beach, drink pina coladas, and fish in the Gulf of Mexico if there's any fish left in there after what they did with the oil. If there aren't any fish in there, I'm still going to be fishing, and I'm going to be happy whether I catch anything or not, because this is about relaxation. So... Uh, with that in mind, I've already recorded tomorrow's show for you. It's a call-in Friday show like normal. Yesterday I interviewed um, a guy that's known as America's RV Expert. His real name is Terry Cooper, and that show will air either Monday or Tuesday next week. If I get a second show done today for you, I don't think I will. So maybe Tuesday and Wednesday without a show next week, and then I'll be back on Thursday. It's a couple days off. Try not to leave you too many days off without a show, though. Uh, today we're going to talk about something we haven't talked about in a while, at least in depth, and that's permaculture. And what permaculture is and what the hell it has to do with survivalism in the first place. I and mean, we're supposed to be survivalists. We're supposed to be out there making fire with sticks and storing food in our house and being ready for the end of the world as we know it and all those other things. Well, what is this hippie permaculture stuff? Well, you're going to find out today it's not really hippie permaculture stuff. It's permaculture. And that's about making sure that we survive as individuals, and if we do it right, that we survive as a species. And that's all that survivalism really comes down to. Do we wake up tomorrow breathing or not? And is there some quality in it? So I'll try to do that for you today. If you've listened to my shows on permaculture in the past, you're going to get new material today. It's not going to be a rehash of you know, something I've done before. There'll be definitely information I've done before because it is for new people too. But uh, I called all of this directly from the Permaculture Designer's Manual written by Bill Mollison, who is one of the co-founders of the permaculture movement. And uh, I'll get more into that in just a second. Let's go ahead and take care of our housekeeping first. Housekeeping item one, let's take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show is here for you every day, five days a week, Monday through Friday. Sponsor of the day number one, Safe Castle Royal. Everything you need for your prepping needs, man. I mean, everything from food to tactical equipment, you name it, they've got it. Check out Safe Castle. Uh, they also build some of the, hard, uh, the best hardened structures on the planet on their sister site. You might want to check that out. Link over while you're there. And they're a good supporter of the show and the audience. They have a discount buyer's clubs, $29 lifetime. And uh, if you are a member of our MSB, you get that for free. Vic asked me to note one thing, folks. If you are Canadian, you don't get it. And if you're outside the United States, you don't get it. It's not because he doesn't like Canadians or international folks. It has to do with his ability to ship, especially a lot of the items that he ships, to those nations. Uh, it makes it cost prohibitive. Uh, so it's not that you can't have a discount membership. It just ain't going to do much for you because of the elevated price and because of shipping restrictions. Uh, next up today is a new sponsor called KnifeKits.com. They came on about a month ago. These guys are great, man. If you check out any of the blade forms, knife makers forms, these guys are like the best thought of uh, folks out there. Great equipment. And I'll tell you what, 
making a knife can be something you start out as a blacksmith with, or you can buy some components and, and add to that, or you can, you know, really do some things that are pretty cool and unique and build something specialized to yourself without a lot of really high-end skill. And there's anything in between there. Think about it like modeling, right? You can go out to the store and you can buy one of these really complex Totally, you have to paint every part. Everything's glued together. You know, if it's a battleship, you have to put together the little lifeboat before you put it on the ship. You can go down to that level, or you can get together a nice snap together model kit. Making knives is kind of the same way. You can make it as complex or as simple as you want and still get a lot of personalization. So check out KnifeKits.com. Remember to connect with me, Twitter, YouTube, and Facebook. Facebook, man, get on my, my survival podcast page. That's the one I'm most active on anyway. Um, and help me win. I'm, I'm going to contest with Brian Black with ITS Tactical who can get more likes in the month of August. We're kicking his ass right now, folks. But, you know, he hasn't formally surrendered. And when you're doing battle... If your enemy hasn't formally surrendered, you keep pouring it on. Uh, don't worry. We really love Brian. He's one of my best friends. But he started this challenge, so he has to lose. So please like my uh, fan page on Facebook. Consider joining the MSB. Do that. You get exclusive content available only to members, a bunch of free videos. Basically, you're supporting the show at 20 cents an episode. And with that, let's go ahead and get into the main topic of today's show, which is permaculture. And what I wanted to start out with today is... Basically, what is permaculture and why does it apply to survivalism? What is it as a mile-high overview and more than the textbook definition that most people give? What most people say that permaculture is, is really just a simple combination of the words permanent and culture. And that even though that the most, uh, the most thought of components of it are agricultural based, so it's like permanent agriculture, it's really not about permanent agriculture, it's about permanent culture. It's about putting systems into place so that our existence can be permanent. That's a pretty good reason to look at this as a survival topic, isn't it? Um, I've been called an optimist for saying that I believe that permaculture can solve all the problems on the planet. Um, people say that's just ridiculous, that there's, they can't, hell, I can't solve all the problems with the food supply, which is its main thing. So how's it going to solve problems like conflicts and, uh, you know, conflict over land and resources and things like that? Well, the more you learn, the more you know, and the more you know about permaculture, the more you realize that it is a system of solutions. And that, I think, is my biggest definition for permaculture. And it's a different one, and it's not one that I've ever heard anybody use before. Somebody has, I'm not ripping them off or anything. In fact, I'd like to know, because if somebody's ever said that before, as a, as a concrete definition of permaculture, I want to read more about and hear more about what they're doing, because I think that that can, can take and splinter off into a whole new way of understanding the system. But if you think about it that way, if permaculture is a system of developing solutions then it can solve our problems, because that's what it's about. It's not about what is the problem. It's about a systematic way to look at a problem and find a solution for it. So whatever the problem may be, if we use the permaculture process, we can find a solution to it. So how that you know, applies to survivalists, because here's the thing about survivalists. We're optimistic pessimists, right? We're optimistic that we can survive or we wouldn't bother with all the stuff that we do. You know, we wouldn't homestead, we wouldn't grow our own food, we wouldn't learn to preserve food, we wouldn't store food, we wouldn't get low on our debt ratios, we wouldn't live within our means, we wouldn't learn primitive skills, we wouldn't pay attention to what's going on around us, we'd be like the rest of the sheep out there, and we'd just nod our head based on whether we listen to ABC or Fox News, right? 
We're either left paradigm or right paradigm. We go, oh, yeah, that's right. Oh, if they would just thought that everything would be okay, if everybody would let ours, you know, that's how we would be like most people. We'd have two cars with payments on them. We'd have a great big fat mortgage. And when we got to a point where we could easily afford our mortgage because of the way life worked out for us and inflation, we'd screw that up and go buy a bigger house and say that we're moving up. And we would just keep doing the same thing everybody else does. Since we don't do that, the society looks at us and says that we're pessimistic. We're not. That's not, uh, that's not pessimism. You do things that are on your, in your own best interest and your own best interest of your family to further your life when you're optimistic. If you're pessimistic, you're like, screw it. Let's be in debt. Fine. Whole thing's going to fall apart anyway. Who cares? Inflation will take care of it. I don't care. You know, as long as the temperature in my pool's right, I'm happy, right? The Bill Clinton era. If, 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 hey, it's the economy, stupid. And as long as the economy's okay, I'm good. If it's bad, I'm going to blame somebody. But either way, I'm going to live the same. That's how most of society lives, and that is actually very pessimistic. That is saying that I can't control things, so I might as well live the way the system's designed and not try to change the system. Where a, a survival-minded individual, self-reliant individual, a homesteader, and a permaculturist all have in common is we've decided we've figured out a better way for ourselves, and we're going to extract ourselves from the system and demonstrate that better way. Instead of trying to make other people do it, we'll just do it, and when other people see it and like what they see, that is attractive. Rather than fight directly in the center, in the middle, trying to change things where they don't want to be changed. There's enough room for us all. We'll go act. That's optimistic. Pessimistic side of survivalism, and I believe a lot of permaculturists feel this way too, that are not survivalist-minded individuals in the way that we think of the term here on the show, is that we don't really believe that society could figure this out as a whole. That no matter how many of us there are, there will always be more of them, and sooner or later they'll screw things up, and that's why we have to take our optimism and build our own way. That the, the, the sheep will always outnumber you know, the people that just left the flock and decided to create their own world. And that's our pessimism. And because of that pessimism, we tend to think that big changes in society are not possible or not likely anyway. And they're not definitely not likely in our lifetime, so we better take care of ours and our own. And maybe after society shoots itself in the foot bad enough, the shit hits the fan, the whole thing crumbles apart, and half of those people die, not because they're bad people, but because that's the way systems work. You know, if you're walking down the street and a piano falls out that somebody's trying to lower and squashes you, you're dead. If you're driving down the road in a smart car and you get hit by a 10-wheeler hauling gravel, you're dead. It's not an ethical thing at that point. It's the way society works. And if society crumbles, people that aren't prepared for it will die in large numbers. And a lot of the, the, the survival community feels that that's the only thing that will wake the survivors up, is watching their friends die. That's a bit overly pessimistic. I don't feel quite that way, but I understand what you're saying. So with permaculture, you say, well, how's this a survival concept when it's about changing everything? And I don't think everything's ready to change. Well, you could change it for yourself. You could build your own systems that provide for you, provide for a community that does see it your way, whether that community is a couple families, one family, or a small town. And it's been done up to the town level. It's definitely been done up to kind of the community neighborhood level. There are communities that have been built 100% on permaculture principles, and those homes today are worth five times what a home across the street in the next neighborhood is worth. So it's profitable too. 
So in other words, we don't have to change the entire world for permaculture to matter. It can be part of what we do every day. One thing we need to understand about permaculture, though, and this is directly from Bill Mollison's uh, Permaculture Designer's Manual, is what they call the prime directive of permaculture. And I don't know if that is taken from Star Trek or it precedes Star Trek or whatever for Star Trek fans, but that's what it says in the book, so that's the word I'm going to use, the prime directive of permaculture. And that is, the only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Now, if you want to know why it's a survival topic, I'm just going to read that to you again verbatim. The only ethical decision is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Let me read it to you and add a word or two. The only ethical decision for a modern survivalist is to take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. That doesn't sound very hippie-ish to me, you know? If one thing you guys need to know, any of you guys out there that have the distrust of the vegan culture or whatever, and by the way, I've been asked recently why I'm so hard on vegans. I'm not. You want to be a vegetarian or a vegan? Two different things. I know that. Uh, go ahead. Knock yourself out. I think that you do have some health issues that you have to really be careful with the combinations of your food uh, and, and make sure that you're doing certain things to, uh, to beef that up, especially if you're a vegan, not a vegetarian, that uh, a few eggs uh, or a few ounces of chicken a week would solve for you. But if you want to be that way, that's fine. The vegetarian I don't like, right? It's like the the uh, the non-drinker I don't like. You don't want to drink, I don't care, right? You don't want to eat meat, I don't care. Giving me a hundred reasons why I shouldn't eat meat, then you irritate me. So I, I know that is a like a, a touchy point for a lot of people, especially in our world with all the homesteaders that are out there. Man, we're you know we're raising chickens and rabbits for meat and stuff like that. We're hunters, we're fishermen, we're carnivores. Bill Mollison's a carnivore. He's totally for eating meat. And he's the founder of this movement. I just wanted to make it a little more comfortable for some of you that maybe aren't comfortable with it. But And the reason I'm doing that now is I want you to be open-minded with three things you're about to hear. And those are the three primary ethics of permaculture. Because the third one is going to give some of you a problem. And I want you, when you hear it, if it immediately strikes you the wrong way, pause, take a breath, and listen with an open mind to what it actually means. Because some of you, especially of those of you who follow the Alex Joneses of the world, are going to see something in it that is not there. All right? Let's start with the first one, because I don't think a lot of people have a problem with this, care of the earth. The reason that care of the earth is a permaculture principle is, again, what is the primary directive of permaculture? Take responsibility for our own existence and that of our children. Take away the earth and we're screwed. Right? You don't have to be a tree-hugging hippie to understand that the oxygen that we breathe is part of a cycle that comes from the trees and the plants that convert CO2 back to oxygen for us. You don't have to be a tree-hugging hippie to understand that when we walk outside and we stand in the sun and we receive its warm solar radiation that provides vitamin D in our skin and keeps us alive, that it's the Earth's atmosphere that prevents that from killing us. And everything else that we do on a daily basis to live, from eating, breathing, sleeping, drinking, existing, is tied to the earth. And that if we were taken from the earth into the atmosphere of outer space, or any other planet in our solar system and left there, we would die in a millisecond. There is no other place other than here that we know of where we can exist for any period of time without a whole lot of technology to create an environment that's a pseudo version of Earth. So caring for the Earth is not a hippie principle, 
It's a human principle. The next one is, and this is where I think it's very, very different from a lot of the typical environmentalist bullshit. Care of people. And this is going to help you with the third one so you don't go out in left field when you hear it, folks. Care of people. See, here's the thing that I have a problem with a lot of, of like the uber-environmentalists. They don't seem to care about people very much. Uh, they equate the life of a fish with the life of a human. Now, I actually can find a way to do that that will make sense to you. I'm not going to do it today. It's too involved. I would spend 20 minutes on it. But it would be back to care of the earth. It would be back to if we destroy the life web, we lose the people. But these environmentalists don't mean it that way, right? I mean, I listened to this lady from PETA on 2020 talking to John Stossel one time comparing chicken farms to concentration camps where millions of people were killed and equating the life of a chicken to the life of a human. I'm sorry. If a chicken dies so that I can have fried chicken, so be it. That is the purpose of the chicken, at least that chicken. Another chicken might live in my backyard to a ripe old age and provide me with eggs, and that may be that chicken's purpose. And another chicken might just be an amusing chicken that I enjoy that doesn't give me any eggs, but I spare that chicken because I like it. So it's a pet. And animals can, and another, you know, that, all of those chickens for a time may be part of my system providing me with recycling of my waste and providing me with compost for growing other things and producing other things. But the life of a chicken does not equal the life of a human being. And we must care for people. That's a permaculture principle. That's why we do this. If we're going to take responsibility for our existence and that of our children, we understand that this world would be an awful boring place that if we were alone in it, and we wouldn't be able to make it alone. But most people, if you put them in a little family group of about six people and eliminated every other human on the planet, they wouldn't live very long. We'd like to believe you would, but... Humans are communable by nature. When you put, you look anywhere in the world, no matter how primitive the society, there's very few societies where the average group size is under 20. There's a lot of them where it's small, 20 to 40 people, and that works. But five doesn't work very well at all. And if there is a place where there's a group that's been taken down to five, that group will generally look for somewhere else to, to become part of eventually they'll realize it's necessary. And that has to do with something I'm not really going to talk about a lot today, but there are certain laws, and these laws are real laws, like gravity. You drop shit, it falls, okay? And I've said that before. Um, and one is that the probability of the extinction of a species, and this is from a guy named Birch, the probability of the extinction of a species, species is highest when its population is extremely low or extremely high. And even when we look at human bands, small groups, if the, the small group has its own unique intrinsic culture, its own unique intrinsic worth, it's another law that living beings have intrinsic worth, whether human beings or animals, they all have some intrinsic worth. Well, a community creates an intrinsic work, worth greater than the, the, you know, the sum total of its parts. The unique culture, ideas, and concepts, and lessons that ten people learn working together are greater than any one individual, and they can be handed down to subsequent generations. The reason the three, four, five-person group looks for the larger group is the preservation of that. So that because eventually we all die, eventually we all become compost, eventually we're all worm food, our bodies anyway. So if we want to preserve that going forward. We have to obey that law. If our population is too high or too low, we run the risk of extinction, either as a species as a whole, 
or as our own unique collective within a species. Which brings us to the third ethic, and this is the one some of you guys are going to see eugenics in. Stop. Stop and think. And that is setting limits to population and consumption. There is a limit to how many beings can occupy a given space. That doesn't mean setting a global population limit, even though that eventually becomes the effect. But this is not China where we restrict people's right to have children. This is not a eugenics program uh, that Alex Jones talks about, which I don't necessarily believe in directly the way that he does, but I do believe the indirect consequences of certain stupid things where things are understood that people will die from it, but that's natural and that we can't have too many people anyway. That's not that. It's that let's say that we had a town and we were, we were building a new town from the ground up and we were designing it to be permanent and sustainable and be able to provide for itself. And we had a thousand acres this town was being built on. There's a limit to the number of people that should live in that town. If we're going to pull from the earth, put back to the earth, and build a sustainable town, there's a limit. Now, this limit doesn't necessarily need to be enforced by any kind of law, other than the law that humans follow themselves, which is we seek equilibrium. People basically choose how many children that they're going to have today. And and if you look at societies that have advanced to some level of dependability with health, longevity, their populations are very, very gradually increasing or stagnant. The United States of America is a perfect example. You take away immigration, specifically illegal immigration, our population is stagnant. So people think there's a problem with that. I'm not telling you whether it's good or bad. I'm telling you this is what happens. People will set limits, right? I mean, having 20 kids seems like a good idea when you're running a farm and they all become workers on your farm and grow the family business. Having 20 kids when they're all going to want to go to college, there's a natural reduction in reproduction. So... I don't want you, but I want you to think about it bigger than that. I want you to think about it and, and take humans out of the equation so that you can understand the ethical principle. If you have a 10 acre farm and you want chickens, there's a limit to how many chickens that you can raise on your farm, specifically if you can do it ethically. If you're going to put in one of those big chicken houses and grow genetically modified chickens and every 40 days the chickens have grown from egg to market, you can put a huge yield of chicken in there. You can put massive density. But if you're going to have chickens that are able to run around, eat insects, get some natural forage, get exercise, live a life that's right for a chicken, which doesn't have to equal what's right for a human, for God's sakes, but actually have some positive impact on the system that they're in, what they take is returned, and become a positive balancing force, there's a limit to how many chickens you can have. You can't put 10,000 chickens on 10 acres. Right? And I'm going to a ridiculously high number just to drive the point home. If you're going to grow corn on 10 acres and you want to do it in a sustainable manner, you can't grow 10 acres of corn. Then you need chemical fertilizers, you need genetically modified crops, you need sprays, you need all the things that modern agriculture supposedly needs. If you grow a half acre of corn every year on 10 acres with other crops and multiple systems supporting each other, you can grow corn. And you don't have to use genetically modified corn, and you don't have to use all types of chemicals. You can grow a sustainable system where corn is an output. And it actually has a return in the, the stalks and the things that are composted back to the earth. It can be done. But there's a limit to population, and there's a limit to consumption. There's a limit to consumption. That's the bigger one. You can only take so much 
before you put back, before you destroy a system. If I, and again, the, the simpler you make it, the easier these concepts are to understand. If we take a lake, five-acre lake, full of panfish, you know, and every day we drag a net through that lake and take everything out of it to feed people, there will come a day when we drag that net through the lake, and even though it's pretty sizable, five acres is pretty big, there'll be nothing in our nets. We'll destroy the food web in that pond. If we can do that to a pond, we can do that to an ocean. It takes longer. It takes greater abuse. It has more resiliency. It can come back more times. It's far more productive. But if we can destroy the small, we can destroy the great. And it's up to us in our management of our own systems. This is not really about the earth. This is about your backyard. If you want to build a sustainable system as a survivalist, if you want to be self-sufficient, independent, self-reliant, As a person, if you want a homestead, whether it's a little homestead like we talked about this week or a 40-acre homestead out in the country, you have to think this way. Because you can overtake from your own land. In fact, you're more likely to. Because there's less restriction upon you from doing it. All you have to do is walk out the door and start taking. So that, I, I, I almost didn't talk about this thing because I know that some people will go left field with population limitation. But this is not the controlled population limitation that we're talking about. It's a concept that if we live this way by these ethics, that humans would make this choice on their own. And everywhere that we've stabilized society to some level of regularity, this has occurred, not with every single... Some people want 12 kids. Fine, if you do, go have 12 kids. I don't have a problem with that. But if you look at any large nation that's reached stability, population is leveled. So people do this on their own. We need to think about it, though, outside of humans. How many chickens is it proper to raise on an acre? Should we be doing things the way that we're doing now? How much corn should be grown on a 40-acre plot? 40 acres or four? If we're going to be ethical about the land. That's what this is really about. That moves us into something that's more mechanical in nature, maybe more what you tuned in to hear today, and that's five design principles of permaculture. How do you actually pull this off? What is permaculture really all about when it comes to especially the agricultural component? Most of the people that listen to this show are on some level a gardener. Whether it's a pot on the back of your patio or your, your backyard or you're actually a homesteader with a big piece of land. Most people, not all, but most are into some level of growing things for themselves. Those that are not tend to be people that maybe take from nature. So you're foraging. Uh, primitive skills, things like that. These things apply there as well, especially with a little bit of help, nature can give you more. So hopefully this will be a good universal topic today. But the five design principles of permaculture start out with number one being work with nature rather than against it. And I think this is one of the biggest problems that new home gardeners have. We work against nature. We go out and we try to make a garden that looks like something in a book. Everything's square, everything's straight, Everything's controlled. Everything lives as long as possible. Nothing dies except the weeds. No weeds. Everything we grow, we want, to, especially if we're gardening for food, our gardens are set up so that everything is a food. You know, a lot of people look at my garden and go, why are there marigolds? Huge, big marigold taking up two square feet of your 32 square foot bed. That's a lot of space to give to a plant that you're not going to eat. And I'm not talking about calendula, a marigold that tastes really good chopped up in a salad. I'm talking about a French marigold. You could eat it, but you probably don't want to. There's some African species of marigold, by the way, that can be uh, toxic, just so you know that. But why are they there? 
Well, because they have a purpose, right? They are repellent to a lot of pest insects. They look good. They smell good. They create habitat for predators. See, that's working with nature. I'll have a weed pop up, and I look at it, and I go, ah, purslane. My wife wants to pull it. I go, oh, leave it alone, leave it alone. It's just a weed. Yeah, it's a weed. It's also edible. And it's growing all by itself. Leave it alone. We've had lamb squatters pop up. Let them alone. Let them grow. And creating places where nature's allowed to do whatever it wants. So having a little space in your yard that you just leave alone. Maybe you build it in like a rock garden, but you let it go. Whatever happens, there happens. Maybe you add some seed, throw some wildflower seeds or something in there, but it's big, high grasses and everything. And some people would look at it and go, well, what's the purpose of that? Again, it's natural. It's natural. So in all things, and I, I can give you a hundred examples, but just start thinking this way overall as an overriding thought. How can I work along with nature to encourage things that I want rather than trying to completely prevent them? The next one is the problem is the solution. Just kind of gave you an example of that. The problem is we have purslane popping up in our garden. The solution is let it grow and eat it. All right, there's a plant that I can't buy at the store. Can't I mean, you go to the grocery store and find purslane. Tastes really good. Tastes great. Reseeds and reproduces itself. Right? Has uh, an ability to retain a lot of moisture. So it's a good plant to eat if you're in a dehydrated state and you're short on water supply. Very, very resilient. Uh, able to stand up to a lot of problems. Very free of pests. There are some pests that eat it, but it generally grows fast enough that it'll outgrow the, the pest consumption of it. And I don't have to do any work. Where other people see a problem, this plant is growing in my garden and I didn't plant it, I see a solution, let me consume this plant. There's a lot of things like that. And again, you have to start looking around you and looking at a problem and go, how can I harness this problem? I live on land that has a steep slope. Whenever it rains, the water flushes out of my property and takes things along with it. Problem. I don't get a lot of rain, so it's worse because the ground's usually hard and I don't have a lot of hydration. I have to do a lot of my own irrigation because of that. Problem. Solution. Swale. Permaculture solution. Swale is a ditch on contour. In other words, I build a ditch on my slope, but I build it so that it kind of curves back and forth, so that it follows the elevation precisely level. What that does, especially if I have a big piece of land, I do several tiers of this, and then I plant on the downhill side of that swale. The water hits the swale, and unlike a ditch that's not on contour, the water doesn't run through it like a river, it slows it down and it stops it in its traction. And then eventually it could overfill. So toward one end I build a level sill. Absolutely level, just a few millimeters above the top ditch of the ditch line and the water gently flows over, goes down to the next swale and does that. What happens now? All my erosion stops cold. All the water that's trapped by the swales slowly soaks into the land. The water actually continues to flow. It's just instead of flowing quickly over the top of the land, it flows very slowly underneath the surface. Eventually, downhill far enough, if I do this enough, the water will spring out like a natural spring. I'll completely hydrate the land. I reduce my need for irrigation, and I can grow, especially with trees and bushes with deep perennial root systems, anything I want. The problem, instead of let's terrace it, flatten it out, push the hill down, turn it into what our idea of what a farm is supposed to look like, 
We've actually made a much more productive system by harnessing the problem and turning it into the solution. And I'll tell you what, it's not just about agriculture. In society, we can look at most problems and turn the problem into the solution if we'll just think. Permaculture is more about thinking than doing. For every hour you spend doing something in permaculture, you probably should have spent about 10 hours thinking about it. It's a much more fulfilling way to solve problems. The next one is to make the least change for the greatest possible effect. How can I work as little as possible and get the greatest output? Society has screwed that up, and we call that lazy and slothful behavior today. It's not lazy and slothful to be effective. So, yeah, I can go out there and break my back digging a deep hole in the ground to build a bed to grow vegetables in, or I can go out there and create a, something to raise the ground up to create a res, raised bed system, take two layers of cardboard and lay it down on top of the grass, cover that with compost, let it sit there for six months and do nothing, continue to add compost and improve that soil, a year later plant it and have the greatest, most fertile garden you'll ever see with heavy mulch, zero weed problems, all the grass underneath dies, rots, becomes fast carbon pathways for the things that I plant, and that can be anything from a vegetable garden to a new grove that I establish to grow trees and bushes and vines in. So I can spend a lot of effort digging things up and say, look what a hardworking guy I am. Or I can be smart and make the least change for the greatest possible effect. Instead of putting in an irrigation system, I can channel existing precipitation and retain it with a swale or a small depression around something that I want to grow. I can go in and plant new trees or I can go in and properly prune existing ones. I can look at a system and say it doesn't have enough nutrients in it and bring a truckload of stuff from somewhere else that I basically had to take from another system to bring to my own. Or I can introduce animals that will act with nature to produce waste that increases nutrient value. So in other words, I can keep chickens or rabbits or ducks or geese. And I can put them into that system and I can take geese and use them to weed and produce nutrient in their waste. I can take chickens and use them to dispose of surplus vegetable matter that I'm not going to eat and produce waste that becomes... So now the problem is the solution. That's really very much a possible thing to do if we'll think about that, you know. And we make the smallest amount of change. Instead of bringing this huge amount of material in, I bring a few small birds in and I let them do the work. And they do the work willingly because they're just living the way they're designed to live. They're being what they are. They don't have to be trained to do these things. They don't have to be my slave to do these things. They have a very fulfilling life for a chicken. That's all a chicken does. Eat, sleep, breed, lay eggs, poop. That's it. That's all they want. Roost, right? Fly around, take a dust bath, eat a little bit of gravel. They don't want anything else. I can give them everything they want, and they can change things for me to a more positive outcome without me really lifting a finger. And I can even set the system up where I'm not cleaning chicken coops every day. I can set the system up so that their waste goes where I want it, and I can move that place every time I want to if I'll just think and make a system that allows me to do the least amount of work for the most amount of output. And if you work a lot and you're always not home and you, I don't have time for a garden, this is the way that you produce food in your backyard. You think, how can I do the least amount of work to produce the greatest amount of output? The next one is the yield of a system is theoretically unlimited. There is no limit to the yield of a system. 
And we just talked about how we have to limit consumption. Limiting consumption and limiting theoretical yield are two different things. What that means is, no matter how productive my system has become, there's probably some tweak I can make to make it more productive. As long as I stay within the bounds of my ethics. And that's, that's a kind of a deeper one. But what it means, and what it really means overall, is there is no shortage of what we need to survive. There's only a shortage of systems set up properly to provide it. And that's why I believe permaculture can solve our problems like global food shortages. We put enough systems together, we limit population density, we limit how much we take out, the unlimited yields that we can obtain from that are far in surplus of our needs. The next one is everything gardens. And this is a hard one to understand on the surface when you just hear it. Everything gardens. So I'm going to read this one right out of the designer's manual for you in the words of Bill Mollison so that maybe it'll make a little bit more sense. There's a principle that everything makes its own garden or everything has an effect on its environment. Rabbits make burrows and desiccation mounds. Scratch out roots, create short swards or lawns. And also creates the conditions favorable to weeds such as thistles. People build houses, dispose of sewage, dig up soils for gardens, and maintain annual vegetable patches. We can use the rabbit directly as food to help fire control, or or, or to help fi- in fire control to prepare soil for thistles, cardoons, and globe artichokes, and to shelter many native animal species and their abandoned burrows. Rabbits maintain species-rich moorland swards suited to many a sward is a lawn again, folks suited to many orchards, orchids, and small plants. It's a matter of careful consideration as to where this rabbit and ourselves belong in any system, and if we should control or manage their effects or tolerate them. When we examine how plants and animals exchange ecosystems, we find many allies in our effort to sustain ourselves and other species. In other words, every living creature that takes an action creates some part of a growth pattern. Even something like destructive, like an overpopulation of elephants in Africa that completely destroy a stand of trees. What happens as soon as they run out of food and leave? They've left huge amounts of defecation, huge amounts of nutrients rebuilding the soil. All of these areas where the trees have been destroyed are now exposed to solar radiation without shade for the first time in a long time. A lot of plants can't grow in that because it's too intense, so some of the understory that was there goes away. New plants start growing that can tolerate the harsher conditions that are created. They create a little oasis, though, for smaller, more delicate plants to grow within their shade. As those plants grow and begin to to reach a point, because another principle of, of life is that everything dies. Nothing lives forever. So as each succession of these plants dies and goes back to the earth. It continues to enrich the soil using what was left behind the ele- as the uh, by the elephants as a starter. And eventually the trees begin to regrow and the entire grove comes back and it may be different this time, but in effect it was part of a cycle. And anything we look at from a squirrel burying an acorn that he forgets about to a bird that eats fruit with a lot of seeds in it and passes some of them partially undigested somewhere else everything gardens. And if we understand that, then we can embrace that and we can use that in our own efforts. What I want to finish up with today, though, is going over the seven-layer system of permaculture because I believe it's the one that has the most concrete things that you can do, especially when it comes to planning things. And I think it's the system that if you get it, if you understand it, it can change the way you manage your backyard, whether it's 40 feet or 40 acres back there. 
And what the seven-layer system is all about is how does a forest grow? How does a forest grow? How does it meet a field? How does a field grow? When we leave nature alone, and nature does its own thing, and it produces remarkably productive ecosystems, how does it pull that off? It does it with a seven-layer system, and you can probably find some more. I've heard Mollison talk about a few more, but there's seven primary uh, layers to a system. And the first one is the trees, the, and it's the big trees, the high canopy layer. When you walk into the middle of a forest, into its darkest reaches, where the light level is 50% less than it is out in a field, and you look up, and the understory is thin, and you look way, way up, and you see that canopy, that's the first layer that we think of, the high canopy layer. As you move further out toward the edge, and one of the principles of permaculture is that all productivity is on an edge. So to understand that, all you have to do is look at a bass fisherman. Bass fisherman's on a lake, huge lake, thousands and thousands, tens of thousands of acres, massive lake. Does he fish in the middle of the lake? No. He follows the edges of the lake because that's where the productivity is. Even the guy that's out there fishing, he looks like he's way out in the middle of the lake. He's over a structure, a hump, or some a point, or something that's under the water that you can't see that he sees on his graph. And it's that edge, that place where the water is 40 feet and springs up to 20 feet and back down to 40 and somewhere in between that transitional period, that's where life is. That's where he's fishing. So as we move toward the edge, we move toward layers of greater and greater productivity. And as we get out there, we come to what we call the low tree layer. And if you think about any forest as it comes out to a field, it doesn't just like come out with super high and then drop off like a plateau and go flat. You actually look at the layers of the trees, you'll see that the trees kind of step down. And you'll have lower trees near your edges those trees begin the transitional stage. So the next layer of permaculture systems is a low tree layer. As you move out from there, you move into the shrub layer. And the shrub layer is all the bushes and things like that. I'm going to go back through these and talk about how they apply to your backyard, because some people that have never heard this before may be struggling with that right now. Give me a moment. So that shrub layer is all the bushes. You know when you, you're hunting and you, or you're traveling somewhere, or you're hiking somewhere, there's not really a clear trail, and you're going from a field into a wood lot, and you go through that place where it's all brambles and briars and everything's tangled together. And it's really thick. And there's 20 different plants there. And you might not even know what any of them are. That's your shrub layer. That's where that shrub layer is intertangling with that low tree layer. And where you've come from, just further out in the field, where it's easier to walk and there's plants of all varieties kind of growing. But they're all plants that, you know, if you come back in winter, though most of them will be dead. There'll be no frame or structure left behind them. They'll be back down to the ground. And either their perennials and their roots are waiting to regrow, or their annuals and they've reseeded and their seeds are waiting for the soil to warm, but they're gone for the winter. That's your herbaceous layer. So we think of herbaceous and herbs, we think of, you know, coriander and oregano and basil. But her herbs are a much bigger family than we generally think of. Most plants that aren't a tree or a bush are an herb. And when we say herbaceous, we mean everything that's growing out there in the middle of that great big field, from grasses to, to plants to traditional culinary and medicinal herbs. What we're not seeing, though, a lot of times are the other three layers that are there. And we, we, you know, one is really easy to understand why we don't see it. It's the rhizomial layer or the rhizome layer. And that's the root layer. That's a plant like, let's say, sweet potato vine. So it's part of the herbaceous and climbing layer. We'll get to the climbing layer in a second because we see that above the ground. But it's producing something. It's producing a yield underground in the form of a tuber. And there's literally worldwide thousands of plants that have a rhizomial yield. 
that yields something at the rhizome layer. The next one is what we call cover crops. And cover crops are a natural mulch. Cover crops are anything that grows low to the ground and covers the ground, that grows beneath or adjacent to the herbaceous and shrub and bush layer, and it actually does form, again, a natural mulch. It helps the ground not dry out. The earth does all this stuff by itself if we let it be. An example would be maybe strawberries or any type of low-to-the-ground running plant is that cover crop layer, that spreading layer. The next one are the vertical climbers. And these are all the vines. When you're going through that, that shrub layer and there's all these you know, sticker vines that go through the shrubs and grab onto the lower trees and climb into the lower trees and you can't, you got to kind of fight your way through those, those are your vertical climbers. And that seven-layer system is the heart of every ecosystem on the planet that's plant-based. From, and it can be taken down to a micro level up to a macro level. We can see it in a flower pot. We do a proper flower pot. We can take a flower pot and have, really it's a herb, but it acts like a high canopy. It provides shade. It creates shady spots. It creates warm spots. We have something lower growing ne next to it. We have something climbing up. We have something spilling over the side. A typical floral arrangement. If you look for it, you'll find layers everywhere. You look at a city, you'll start to see layers. A city. You'll see big buildings in the, in the center, smaller buildings surrounding it. You'll see it spread out into the suburbs. You'll start to see layers everywhere. And if you do that, you start to realize you can design anything in layers. So how would we do a seven-layer system in a typical backyard? Let's say maybe a little bigger than typical, a half-acre backyard. Well, we might put in a high canopy layer. and Maybe these would be a fruit tree like apple or a nut tree like pecan. So maybe we'd plant two or three or four of these trees toward, uh, you know, toward one side of our yard. Toward, and we probably want to put them on the north side of the yard. Okay, that way the sun uh, coming lower and lower in the south lets it not shade out our own other plants. In between, staggered in between and a little bit to the front of, let's say, our apple trees, maybe we want to plant a lower growing tree, something like peach or something like pear. And, and they could even be more apples, but we plant, let's say, a dwarfing variety of them. And as we, you know, that's the big thing. It's not so much that the dwarf tree layers of different species of trees. It's trees that, by nature or by our own controls, grow lower than our high tree layer and create this drop-down layered effect. As we move further out, we start to maybe move into some tree-shrub hybrids, some things that are kind of a hybrid in between as we transition into a shrub layer. So maybe we look at things that don't grow really tall, but are still really kind of a tree-like, like pomegranates and figs. And then we transition and interplant in between those as we come further out into the system with true shrubs. Things like maybe we put in berry plants, or we put in a currant bush, or a gooseberry bush, or something like that. And as we come further out from there, now we start to transition into our herbaceous layer. We start to plant in among typical culinary and medicinal herbs. Maybe we plant some annual vegetables in that herbaceous layer. Some things that are very hardy that can grow without a lot of help from us. Maybe some things like amaranth. Amaranth is very, very hardy. As long as it's well irrigated, it's going to grow. Uh, maybe some things like ground cherry. I've learned this year ground cherry is almost indestructible. Uh, it's unbelievable the way ground cherry grows. And we, we start to put in some annual vegetables along with perennial herbs. Then we say, hey, we need to have a, a greater yield, so maybe in, in between this, we start to look at our climbers, but we start to think about some root crops. So we plant our sweet potato vine. 
in amongst our herbs and right up into the bush layer, and we let some of them climb up onto the bush and into the low tree layer. Maybe we also bring in some other annual vegetables that, that fit this paradigm, like beans. We start planting beans. Instead of in one big crop, we plant them all over the place, inside our system. And they use the bushes and the trees as, as a natural trellis, and they crawl up. Of course, they're doing something else. Any bean is a legume. So a legume produces nitrogen. And after the bean is harvested for a yield, and its top piece is used as mulch, what's left under the ground is a root system covered with nitrogen nodules, which are now released into the soil, and the nitrogen is made available to our other plants. Maybe we come in at certain spots and we plant ground-covering uh, plants, like uh, squash. That can be a hybrid. It can be a, a, a low-growing, spreading plant, or it will also climb up things and be a climber. Maybe we plant something that's not going to climb at all, like strawberry. And anything that grows low that produces a yield for us. And on top of that, we plant, I wouldn't really say on top of that, in addition to that, maybe we somewhere out there we have a typical, more uh, conventional vegetable garden that we do our common vegetable gardening in with raised beds. But the, the system that we've created now is this huge piece of predator habitat that's going to make that garden more sustainable organically. And it's also extremely productive. It'll probably produce more food than we'll ever get out of a garden. And with some simple um, swaling to the land or some drip irrigation or things like that, we can make that system almost 100% self-sustaining. Our job becomes to go out there and take the things that we need when they're available, to prune things, to trim things, cut things down to the ground. As our trees are growing, we cospice the trees. It's called chop and drop. We cut the top right off. We put it right to the ground. We let it, we don't mold, you know, we don't put it in a shredder or anything. Cut it up and throw it right on the ground. And we let it become natural mulch, a natural fertilizer with rough mulching. And the fungi starts to come in, the mushrooms and the different funguses, and they start to eat this stuff. We keep the ground moist and that process is accelerated. And all of a sudden what we have, even with a half acre lot, an extremely productive self-sustaining system. And instead of having to go out and turn the ground all the time, there's millions of little worms down there turning the ground. And instead of having to worry about insects and fruit flies, we have set up a little chicken run. And once the, once the system is, is big enough to handle chickens, we just turn them loose into it. We turn ducks loose into it, and they handle our slugs. And, and it's, it doesn't have to be exactly the way I'm describing. This is just one example of what it can be like. This is what permaculture is really all about. And this is kind of, again, it's such a big, diverse subject. I could go for hours and hours and hours on nothing but permaculture. I think it's incumbent upon you, if you want to take this thing to another level, if you want to start understanding how to use it to solve problems, for you to learn more beyond what I can teach you, to start looking, there's great stuff out there, the stuff that Jeff Lawton has put out, the stuff that J uh, Bill Mollison has put out, and a lot of other really talented people that have thought about this and thought this through, it's something to really look at. There's a series called The Global Gardener available for free on Google Video. I'll try to find links to that again today for you guys so you can check out The Global Gardener, and it's just... Four different places, uh, Bill Mollison goes to kind of an urban area, a tropical area, a cold area, and a desert area. And they're about 40 minutes apiece in how you handle these different areas using permaculture principles. Um, there's a great one called Greening the Desert by Jeff Lawton. And what could be done a few miles from the Dead Sea in some of the harshest environments in the world if you just think 
differently than we conventionally think about. And if you start looking at these things and start, you have to broaden your horizon and then you have to say, okay, look, I bought this house. This house is on the mountainside. Um, it's on the uphill side of, of this slope. On that slope are trees. Some of there is, so in there is some of that stuff is standing deadwood. If there's a forest fire, once the fire hits the bottom of this hill, especially with prevailing winds, that fire is going to race up this hill and burn my house down. There are permaculture principles to avert that. There are ways to structure things, to build things, to grow things, and to create things that create natural fire breaks that prevent that from happening. When you look at something, no matter what the system is, if you start looking at it with the concepts of permaculture, you'll start finding solutions, or more importantly, turn the problem into a solution. And that's why it's a survival topic, because here's what we know about survival situations. They're never the way we plan for them to be. If they were, they wouldn't be survival situations, they'd be inconveniences. When the shit really hits the fan, whether it's for you as an individual because you're lost in the woods, or for us as a society because our, our brilliant leaders have finally screwed the pooch, pooch royally, no matter which one it is, when things start falling apart, it's going to be up to you to put them back together for yourself. And the greatest skill that you can have in doing that is the skill of being a troubleshooter. And when I look back to my time in the military as a mechanic, it is the greatest thing that the military left me with, was the ability to look at problems and troubleshoot them in an organized manner and find a solution. When I found permaculture, it was such a natural fit. And it broadened my horizon of what troubleshooting was really all about. It's not just having a system that's already in place. It's developing a system as you go. It's looking at something and going, I know these things about this system. And I'd like it to do this, but I'm missing certain components. How can I compensate for that? Or how can I, instead of doing it the way I wanted to, look at the way nature would do it and change that? And it's everything from changing a spark plug to growing a garden. It's much broader than just how to grow things. It's how to think, act, and solve problems. And I, I really hope that you feel encouraged to learn more about this now. And uh, one of the best references I can give you is Bill Mollison's Permaculture Designer Manual. It's expensive, uh, but it is some of the most amazing, thought-provoking things I've ever seen. It could easily be four books. Um, the way it's written, the way it's illustrated, I think it's worth every penny. I'll put a link to where you can find it uh, today as well. Uh, with that, I am going to wrap up today. Again, I hope you'll harness this. Check out the videos. Check out the resources I'm going to give you today. If you want to be able to solve problems as they pop up, and if you want to create a system that's more sustainable for yourself and your family, and if you want to really live the, live the revolution by being the revolution, Permaculture is a good part of that. It's not the only way. It's not the only thing. It's not to the exclusion of others. But even if you don't become a permaculturist in the uh, traditionalist sense, understanding its principles will make you better equipped to survive whatever comes your way. With that, this has been Jack Spierka with another edition of Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough, or even if they don't.
Nobody up there cares. 